hello. This is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, we have a producer considered one of the kings of what we call celeb reality. Jason Carbone has done a lot of unscripted TV with celebrities over the years, like Reverend Run. He created Run's House, Kenny Smith, now the Foster sisters, Aaron and Sarah Foster. They are the stars of a hybrid show on VH1 called Barely Famous, which is now airing in its second season. It's a really funny show if you haven't seen it. It's kind of a send-up of a reality show. Think Curb Your Enthusiasm meets The Comeback. Jason started his career on a little show you may have heard of called The Bachelor, and he went on to create his own production company, Good Clean Fun, which is once again riding the celebrity wave with upcoming series with Cindy Crawford on Amazon and Stuart Copeland from The Police on Travel Channel. Okay, Jason, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. So I always start by saying where, when and where we met. And I was thinking you and I met about a year ago. I came to your office. I sought you out because I'd become obsessed with Barely Famous, which we'll talk about. And I said, I have to meet the person producing this show. And uh, I, our meeting was significant to me because we met for 90 minutes. And you probably won't know this, or maybe this is you with every meeting, but you did not check your phone once the entire 90 minutes. And I thought, classy. Uh, I think that's really important um, when you're with someone and you are – if they're giving you their time, then you should be kind enough to give them their time. I went on your website. I, I do very little prep for these conversations, which is either you know really tacky or really good. But I sort of – I want to know the broad strokes, but I don't want to know too much where it just feels like I already know everything, so why am I bothering? So I went on the website, and I loved your bio because it reminded me of my childhood, which was raised on, you know, Gilligan's Island and pretty much all amazing 70s and 80s TV. Yep. And I was kind of a latchkey kid as well. Um, So, yeah, TV. I mean, I feel like TV raised me. Oh, for sure. But mind you, a black and white television raised me. It wasn't until I I think I was in eighth grade, middle school. When my family got a color TV from Costco, <laughs> and that was a really, really big day. It changed, it changed oh, everything. Oh, it changed everything. It yeah. changed everything. And what year did you get your first VCR? Right around the same time, actually. Yeah, it like was like school. It was like right around middle school, mm-hmm. kind of like eighth grade-ish. I remember um, that I think before we actually got the VCR, my parents wanted to check out the technology, and there was a local store that was renting you videos. It was a mom-and-pop shop, but they also rented VCRs. So my mom and yeah, dad wanted to renting. check it out, yeah. and so we got a box with a VCR in it, and I think we got Gilda Radner Live was, I think, what my parents got. I love it. Um, and so that was our experiment in uh, whether or not a VCR would be good for us. And thankfully, my parents busted out for a VCR, I think, shortly thereafter. Though I think that came after our Atari, which was far more important to me back then. Huge, huge. So what were your shows, like when you, like, zero like zero to, you know, eighth grade, like what were the shows that you... Well, in eighth grade, like, when, you, when I came home from school, there was a block of MASH that was, like, much CTV for me. Um, I just thought that was so well-written, and, yeah. and, and it was... It was a comedy, but there was there was a level of drama to it and reality to it that it didn't play like like all the rest of the sitcoms of my youth, like a Brady Bunch or a Gilligan's Island or whoa, whoa, whoa. any of those. Watch it on Brady Bunch, sir. <laughs> well, but but no, there was there was no like there was a level of humanity on on Mash that I don't think you were going to find the on Carol your typical. Carol and Mike didn't have. <laughs> yeah, it just didn't happen. Uh, but in terms of the shows of the day. I'm going to date myself here, but you know, it was it it was it. We lived for Thursday or Friday night. Friday night, I could remember vividly. It started off with the Dukes of Hazard on CBS at eight o'clock. It moved to Dallas at nine o'clock, still on CBS, and it stayed on CBS on Friday nights. And it ended with a show called Falcon Crest. Oh yeah. Um, and that was that's back when you could get people to stay home on a Friday night to watch TV. The biggest night of television in the late seventies, early eighties, early eighties, uh, was Friday night. Oh yeah, it was huge. I grew up semi-religious, and so we weren't allowed to go out on Friday night, but we were allowed to watch Dallas. And that was, I mean, when Bobby showed up in the shower. 
Do you remember? I mean, I remember. It's the best. That was right around the time I think that I checked out, and and, oh, and other things became more important to me. But but I distinctly remember the summer in which everyone was obsessed with who shot Jr. Oh, yeah, like that was as about as big as it got in pop culture. That was that was amazing. So then you sort of always knew that you wanted to do TV. No, no, I didn't. Unfortunately, <laughs> you knew you wanted to watch it. <laughs> I knew I wanted to watch it. I knew I was a voracious uh, consumer of of television. No. Um, I grew up, you know, the, one of the big sitcoms in my uh, in high school and in growing up was a show called Family Ties. Love Michael J. Fox show. launched pad uh, to his, uh, you know, his his great movies that he made. But, you know, here was this kid, Alex P. Keaton, who was truly a, Reg- a Reagan Republican, uh, raised by parents of the 60s. And he was this, you know, trickle down economics guy. And, you know, there was such a raw, raw element to America at that time. Like, you know, there's a reason that we have the term Reagan Democrat, and that's because Ronald Reagan had an effect on 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 the population that it didn't matter what political party you were for. You were for Ronald Reagan. Can you imagine? It's unbelievable. <laughs> um, it's, well, the tragedy there is Ronald Reagan wouldn't get the nomination today uh, in the Republican Party because he too would liberal. be viewed as too liberal. <laughs> Uh, that said, uh, like Alex P. Keaton, uh, I, I had a very business-focused mind at the time, and I went to college with the desire to get a degree in economics and a minor in Chinese. What? So um, there I was sitting in a language lab my first year in college. Han hao, bu han hao, xie xie jiu. And Wait, what did you just say? I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> I just—it's one of the few phrases that I still remember from class. Um, I think it's—I think it's some sort of a greeting, and I'm probably butchering it at, at, as I say it as well. Um, so uh, I'm taking economics and Chinese classes, and um, part of my general education requirements at UC San Diego was I had to take some arts classes, and so I decided to take a photography class, and uh, the. The teacher, Fel Steinmetz, uh, a phenomenal guy. He's no longer on the planet, unfortunately. But one of his uh, jobs was he was one of Ansel Adams' last, like, lackeys. Wow. And so here was this guy that would tell these great Ansel Adams stories, and he was a phenomenal photographer. And I found myself, this is back before Photoshop, um, where just Photoshop was just starting to come into vogue. Um, but you were developing photos. There were still photo mats yeah. where you could drop off film and film still existed in some in some capacity. And so I found myself spending more time in the photography lab than I was in the Chinese language lab. And I kind of had one of those come to Jesus moments where I was just like, wait a second. College is where you're supposed to figure out what it is you want to do. I think I'm kind of figuring out that I don't want to – I really wasn't concerned about, you know, macro or microeconomics. <laughs> and I was more concerned with creating things that expressed uh, – or creating things that created a sense of emotion when people viewed them or experienced them. Hmm. And so I, I, I called my, my mother and I said, I'm changing majors. And she goes, there's only enough money for four years of school. And I said, don't worry, I'll figure it out. And I did. Um, and there you go. Before I knew it, I was I changed my name from econ- my major from economics to uh, a degree in visual arts media with an emphasis in uh, film, television, and photography. Wow. Quite a story from Chinese to <laughs> Yeah. Big change. Big, big change. Big, big change. So then you graduate. Yep. And what's your first job? Uh, my first job uh, I, I, I had was uh, I, I got really, really lucky. I'll just let's – but then I got really, really unlucky. So um, I knew no one in Hollywood, okay? I, I don't come from a Hollywood family. I wasn't born in Los Angeles. Hollywood and Los Angeles might as well have been the dark side of the moon to me, okay. even though I grew up, you know, in my in college and in my high school years in San Diego. Los Angeles was a a huge city. San Diego was a sleepy city. Yeah, people don't realize they're ninety miles apart or whatever, but they're worlds apart. Worlds apart. Yeah. Um, but my college roommate, my senior year, my last year in college, my fifth year in college, uh, and my very very good friend. Her father at the time was the president of Paramount Studios, 
And she said, I make no promises, but I'll get you an interview. And so I got the interview and I impressed her father enough to have him offer me a job. And I came up to Los Angeles and I rented an apartment in mid-city near uh, LACMA. And um, two weeks before I'm supposed to start, he gets fired. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I don't have a job and I've moved my life to Los Angeles. And I'm just like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? That was the unlucky part. That was the unlucky part. Um, But through some friends and some acquaintances, I ended up getting a job at the Samuel Goldwyn Company. Okay. Uh, at the time, was that called MGM? No, it was still called the Samuel Goldwyn Company. Okay. At the time, they were making movies like Wild at Heart, oh, yeah. Truly Madly Deeply, La Femme Nikita, some really great, yeah, great movies. Great. Um, and they had a little television show that was starting to pop called American Gladiators. And my primary job was to send the gladiators off to um, like car shows and whatnot, <laughs> and they would sign autographs and they would drum up support for for the show. I also was responsible for uh, taking all of the reviews that came in from around the country and collating all of those and doing a cover sheet where you listed all the reviews, the papers they were in, the cities they were in, and whether it was a uh, pro, con, or mixed. <laughs> and I distributed that throughout the It was company. the early Rotten Tomatoes. It was, it was, it was the internal early <laughs> right. Rotten Tomatoes. Right. Um, and I had a job there for about six months. And um, right around the time I realized I wasn't going to be a publicist. I was saying this has nothing to do with TV. <laughs> um, they kind of realized that I wasn't publicist material. Right. And I got fired. Okay. Um, and Were you devastated or were you happy? Blown away devastated. Oh, God. Blown away devastated. I, I hear I had come to Los Angeles and within six months of moving to Los Angeles, I had been – Lost out on the first job that I had by no fault of my own, and I was fired from um, the second job I had. And I'm thinking, like, this is not a resume builder. Third time's charm. <laughs> um, and so uh, through, through a family friend um, and a family that I had uh, become uh, friendly with here in Los Angeles – uh, a gentleman who was a, m- a movie producer at the time in town, Bob Beecher, he, he and his partner, Brad Weston, um, at the time, they were they were starting to produce some movies or getting going in that area. And um, Pauly Shore was just about to come out with a movie called Encino Man. Oh, yeah. And they were like, you are funny. You're a good writer. Why don't you write a movie treatment for Pauly Shore and let's see if we can't make a Pauly Shore movie. What? Yeah. And so that weekend, uh, with my fingers on my old Mac that looked like uh, that people now use as fish aquariums, um, (laughs) I typed a treatment for a a motion picture called Totally London, which had uh, Polly going to London as an au pair to an aging rock star. (laughs) And um, and when it was all over, he would help the rock star rediscover his rock star roots and he would bring his family back together and everything would be hunky and dory. Um, I write this over the weekend. I get it to Bob and Brad. About a week later, I'm sitting with Michael Rotenberg, who's Pauly Shore's uh, manager at the time. Michael saying, I love this. This should be Polly's next movie. I need you to meet Polly and make sure Polly likes this. A week later, I'm sitting with Polly Shore. <laughs> I'm walking him through this movie that I've written. A week later, I'm hip pocketed at CAA and my movie has been sold to New Line Cinema. And I think to myself, this town's fucking easy. Oh my God. Are you 24? Not like even that? 24. Not even. I'm probably like 22, oh maybe my 23. My God. Yeah. And did you and Polly hit it off? Yeah, because I grew up watching him on MTV. <laughs> right. I knew who Polly Shore was. And, right. and and I and if I didn't know who Polly was, I certainly knew the character he was playing because right. I grew up in San Diego and there <laughs> were more than enough stoner surfers to go yeah. around for you to understand what how they functioned. So you had his voice, you had it, you were in his head. Your first celeb reality. Or actually, celeb movie. Celeb so movie. Did it get did it go uh, anywhere? It got sold at New Line. Uh, a guy by the name of Dennis Dugan, who has gone on to direct almost all of Adam Sandler's big movies. Mm-hmm. He did Waterboy. He did, uh, you know, uh, he's done a bunch of them. Yeah, yeah. Dennis. Heard of him. 
He's incredible. Uh, so Dennis Dugan gets hired. The movie gets rewritten. They hire an actual screenwriter to make <laughs> the movie. Um, Dennis has negotiated his deal. He's getting on a plane in a couple of days to start to scout in London, and we're going to make a movie. Wow, in London. Um, and the only thing that was against us was Disney had first right of refusal to make Polly's follow-up movie, and they didn't want his follow-up movie through Encino Man to be at another studio. And so without a script, Jeffrey Katzenberg greenlights a movie that ends up being son-in-law at uh at which was Polly's second movie at Disney. And through a course of events, the movie then gets sold and turnaround to Disney. Your movie. My movie. Right. And they're saying it's gonna be his so third good, movie. Right. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> this is how crazy Hollywood works. So <laughs> no. then all of a sudden, a movie comes out uh, also from Disney called Cool Runnings, which right. was about the Jamaican bobsled oh, yeah, team. Yeah, and suddenly one. everyone at the studio is going, what if we made this totally London a vehicle for Dougie Doug, who was the star and the breakout star from Cool Runnings? And so all of a sudden, my little movie about a stoner surfer from Southern <laughs> California is now about an inner city kid trying to escape uh, from Detroit and gets uh, to London. And, and, it, and it's just all of a sudden I'm sitting there going, well, like, okay, I, I guess we could make it that. And I just wanted to make a movie. Right, like, I, I was just, like, thrilled. Like, well, they're going to be making a movie. And um, But ultimately the movie never got made. And right around this time, um, my money from the movie was running out <laughs> and I was appraising real estate on the side to make ends meet. Um, and a friend called me and said, hey, there's this show on MTV – my sister's the associate producer on it. They need a location coordinator in Los Angeles. And I was like, what's the show? And they were like, it's the real world. Have you seen it? And I, I unbeknownst to them, I was obsessed with this show. It was brand new on MTV. Uh, this was going to be the third season of the show shot in San Francisco. I had yeah. obviously never been a location coordinator. Puck. Wasn't that Puck season? That was Puck season. Yeah. Pedro's season. Right. Um, it was kind of the turning. It was really like where the show truly hit. National conscience, right? Because of AIDS, because of the AIDS thing, and right? Pedro, and you, yeah. you know, my God, President Clinton did a video tribute that played at his funeral, like wow. un, unheard of. Um, and so I said, "Sure, I can do it," not knowing what that entailed, <laughs> right. but Sounds I great. figured it out pretty damn quick. And so I location coordinated for a day or two on that season of the show, and I did a good enough job where they asked me to come in and interview for the next season when they needed a production coordinator here in Los Angeles uh, for Post. And that was my first like full-time television show gig, was on The Real World. That was the fourth season in London, and I was the uh, production post-production coordinator. I've, you know, I've had the really good fortune of working in post-production, production, pre-production. Mm -hmm. pre I did all of those well before I was, you know, the, um, the producer right. or the showrunner or, you know, whatever name you want to give it. Yeah, and I think that makes you so much more valuable because you actually understand what it takes to make the show, like literally make the show. Well, I think it's vital. Um, yeah. I think that um, the ability to know exactly what everybody's job is and know what their job is and know what they should be doing. Yeah, as a company owner. It's as like, a company owner, did, kind of important. did that job yeah. and you can do it or, you know, don't or like, buy that story. <laughs> you know, that's not the way you do this job. Right. Right. Or at least I've never seen anybody do it that way. Yeah. No, I get that. Okay. So then when was The Bachelor? Was that after Real World? Uh, it was a little bit after. So I did I did Real World then for a season, and then I did the first kind of three seasons of Road Rules. And so I did those three seasons, um, and then I started bouncing around um, to places that were starting to dabble in alternative. I did, a, I did some work at Disney. I did some work at Lifetime. Um, and ultimately, um, Disney decided that they wanted to do like a family version of Road Rules. Um, and they wanted to tie it to the opening of a theme park. <laughs> did this, Shocking. Did this happen? It happened. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I made a show called It's a Trip where uh, we took a family from, I want to say Nashville maybe, Nashville, Tennessee. It was somewhere in Tennessee, um, and a, a beautiful tour bus rolled up, a purple tour bus, used to be Prince's. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and uh, we took this family on this wonderful week-long journey through America, where they did different adventures, and they and they, you know, they were do, they rode, they raced lawnmowers, they recorded a song with a country <laughs> western and singer in Nashville. Um, they what else did they do? They went to a rib eating contest in Georgia, and it all ended then with the family arriving in their tour bus at Disney. Disneyland at this place called the Animal Kingdom. Oh yeah, of course. Did they did they have a store? Was it like Extreme Home Makeover? Did they have a dessert? Were they deserving for some reason? Um, I, I think if I'm really being honest, okay. I think that they were trying to improve relations with like Tennessee in terms of the cable universe. Oh wow! And I think that played a role in where we were plucking this family from because they were working with cable operators there and trying to get Disney there and get it Ooh, like a better like- spot on the dial. Corporate. Very corporate. Wow. Um, And so I did that show. um, And then uh, right around that time, I got called back to MTV. And there was a show that they were starting there called Making the Video. Yeah. And um, Billy Rainey was the executive producer of that show. And uh, he hired me to be the field director producer. Um, And in very short amount of time, I kind of... Uh, developed an internal reputation at MTV as being pretty good with talent. Mm-hmm. And so then I started getting the talent that uh, that was deemed difficult. Did you do the Mandy Moore one? I remember saying that one. I, I did do the Mandy Moore one. She wasn't difficult okay, by any stretch of the imagination. That. She was an absolute uh, doll. She was she was wonderful. So give up. Come on. Give up one name. Mariah Carey. Uh, that's shocking. Shocker. I can't I believe know. it. Yeah. Now did you, which is the side she can't be shot from? It wasn't so much the side. Okay. It was like there were like two DPs that, needed to light her. Right. So like uh, Daniel Pearl was one of them and that's the guy we hired and like Daniel Pearl is like he's a legit cinematographer <laughs> making, you know, big big dollars. Right. Not going to be working at MTV except when Mariah Carey calls and says I want Daniel Pearl. Um and 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 there you go. M- Mariah also likes to have a monitor at her feet so she can glance down and see the way she looks. I have to say, she learned it from Tommy Matola, man, because we interviewed him when I worked at VH1. We did this show. He was the only person who, A, needed all the questions in advance, which, as you know, as a producer, always fun to do that. And number two, had his own lighting and production crew. Not ours. We weren't allowed to use ours. They had two days. It was just an interview. Just one person in a chair. Two days of lighting for this interview. It looked fine. It looked like all the rest of the interviews. But that's where she learned. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Crazy. Was she a nice person? Was she professional with you? She was very, very professional. She was she was an absolute love with me. It was just clear that she was definitely burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. And so, you know, no one's ever at their best when that's happening. She's making a music video. She's right. got this going on. She's got that going on. She was dating Luis Miguel at the time. Right. And like that was combustible. It was yeah. there was a lot of stuff going on. But the wonderful thing about that video in particular was I got to, you know, the great thing about that job overall is I got to watch really talented directors at work. And so, you know, I'm able to, you know, you can pick up a little bit here and a little bit there. And so as I was getting my chops and my juice and my creative evolution was happening, here I was with a guy like Francis Lawrence, you know, or a Brett Ratner or uh, a Dayton Ferris, you know, like these are some really talented, talented directors. And so for me, it was like I viewed that as kind of like my Ph.D. in film when you're on these sets and you're seeing these really talented people at work. That's interesting because, you know, and we're we're jumping ahead for a second, but, you know, you also direct. Almost famous, you know, barely famous, barely famous. How many almost people famous, do that? They do it all every the time. Second, it's a fine Kate Hudson film. Yeah, yeah, it's that was pretty good. Um, so you know, and you certainly don't have to direct that show. I mean, your company, do, you know, I mean, you obviously do it because you. I'm assuming you just love directing more than anything. I do. Um, but in our industry, well, how do you delineate the difference between producing and directing? I grew up in a time in the business where there was a field. Producer, right, and there was a right. field director. Yeah, and so, like, an early show I did, I, I did actually before I did making the video at MTV was a show called Fanatic. Yeah, I okay? remember Fanatic. And so I was strictly the field director on that. Okay, and so I was only responsible for 
the content occurring, looking good, and making right. sure it got on tape. Right. There was a field producer who was responsible for the content. Um, as things started to morph and change and budgets were already starting to get hacked, all of a sudden that became one job. Yes. And so now you needed to be a field field producer slash director. And so you were not only were responsible for the look of the show, but you were now also responsible for the content. That was my job when I was doing making the video. Um, so I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think there's very few, unless you're doing like a big broadcast reality show, you have very few just directors these days. Um, I think, and that's just, uh, that's because of budget more than anything right, else. Right, um, So either you find a really talented kind of showrunner in the field who, and then you hire a really talented director of photography and you kind of let the director of photography worry about the visuals of yes. the show, or you uh, end up as a show, as a sh- as a production company owner spending a lot of time on set and minding the look of a show. Um, and you're not really necessarily directing, but you're, you know, sort of directing. Yeah. Um, or you, you know, we're, we can jump ahead here, but, or like in the case of Run's House, when, 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 when we produced that show, I had a really really, really specific vision for how I wanted that show to function. And in a lot of ways, I neutered my director because I shot it a really particular way and you couldn't bring like the artistry of a of, of, a, of a traditional director to that because of the way we shot it. We, we had very, very strong rules as to how we were going to shoot that show. And by having those strong rules, it dictated how the show was directed. And that was in your mind from the beginning in terms of how you wanted it? It was as as clear as the sunrise on a on a you know on a new day. It was I I saw that show in my mind, at least how I wanted to make it before I made it. And how did and, you envision it? Um so Run's House came to me as a busted pilot. Oh, I didn't know that. And that someone else produced. Someone else produced it, and um, the network wasn't thrilled with it. Um, but uh, Tony and Liz called me, uh, and they were like, "Hey, Tony DeSanto, and Liz, Tony Gately, DeSanto Liz Gately." They were uh, they were the creatives uh, on the East Coast at that time, and they said, "We have this busted pilot runs house. We're committed to making six episodes of the show, but we really don't like the pilot. But we got to make six episodes." Can you watch this and give us your take? And I was like, sure, I'd love to. Um, so I watched the tape, and, and what I really fell in love with was this family. I didn't like the way they were trying to tell the story on the pilot, and I didn't like the way it was shot. And I was just like, well, what's really engaging is this family. So it's a family, and I started to think about, okay, how do you want to present this family? And at the time, Laguna Beach had literally just started, and – what I loved about Laguna Beach was the fact that they put a disclaimer in front of the show, making sure that you knew it was real and not fake. And now, in hindsight, we know just how <laughs> fake it was. But 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 th- they were presenting reality in a way that reality had never been presented before. It was shot like a traditional drama. Right. Okay. Right. And it didn't look like a reality show. It looked like a drama. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well. That was a really interesting device. What if we did the same thing, but we did it with a comedy? And what if we made sure that you never saw the fourth wall of any room in Rev's house? And what happens if you shot the entire show on sticks like a traditional sitcom? And what if every shot of everybody was elbows up, (laughs) cowboy style? (laughs) Right. Like it is on a sitcom yeah. because the funnies there from your midsection to the top of your head is where funny plays in TV. And what if you had and what if and what if in if you did all of that? But what also if we knew the stories that we were going to tell before we told them and we use some of our own personal experiences to round these stories out and make them more compelling? So the first sort of hybrid, really. 
I, on the comedy side, I would Run say the comedy I, side. I would say yeah. Okay. Though, though yeah. I would say, in all deference to the Osbournes, uh, um, yeah. But that was really more done in posts than it was done in the field. Interesting. Okay, that was it wasn't a show even where intentional. they where they shot a bunch of stuff and then they said, okay, how do we make this work and how do we make this funny? Interesting. Whereas I think we went in and maybe and, and maybe they didn't, but but from the anecdotal stories I've heard, that's more or less the way the Osbournes worked. And how far after the Osbournes did Run's House come? A couple years. Okay, so on a couple the years. Got it. So you had all this in your head after seeing the busted pilot. I did. You presented it to Liz and Tony, and they said, yes. They were like, that's a really interesting take. Will you go sit and meet the Rev? Right. And I was like, sure, no problem. And so I flew to New Jersey, to Saddle River, New Jersey. And on the flight there, I had another vision. And it was a vision of, um, you know, at the time, there were some really interesting interstitials happening on comedies uh, at that point in time. I always liked on Home Improvement how like they had the drawings of the house with like yeah. with like some kids toys and some other things. And it felt very much germane to what that show was about. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, if we're going to make a sitcom, we're going to need some cool interstitials to get us in and out of things. Because I didn't want to just use Pat reality like B-roll shot of Saddle mm-hmm. River. Another B-roll <laughs> shot of Saddle house. River. Exterior of <laughs> the house. We're yeah. in the house. So um, I had this idea. Rev was the was the was one of the pioneers of hip hop. I said, what if we scratched his house? And so this idea of seeing his house scratch and maybe the roof pop off and some speakers jump out kind of hit me in the head. Love And one of the first things uh, that happened when I met the Rev was Rev says, so tell me how you want my show to look because I hear you don't like the look of my pilot. I was like, no, I didn't particularly like the look of your pilot, but here's what I want to do. I want to scratch your house. Wait, did he did he like the look of the pilot? Like, were you on the same page, or he wasn't happy with the pilot? Either? I don't think at that point in time, Rev Rev wanted to make a TV show. Yeah, right. And so I told him I wanted to scratch his house. He looked at me like I was a little crazy, and he and then he he raised an eyebrow and he said, "You can scratch my house." And I said, "I think we can scratch your house, Rev." And he's like, "If you can make my scratch, <laughs> if you can make my house scratch, I'm in." And I was just like, okay. Done. And so uh, that's great. That is one of the signatures of the show too. Is yeah, our, our our graphics and you know and how we played with those and um. And, and that so was the, the beginning of a beautiful long relationship. How many seasons was that show? That show was either six or seven seasons, but then we did two or three seasons of a spinoff called Daddy's Girls with Angela that. and Vanessa. Yeah. Um, and then you know. About three years ago, we started uh, our second kind of tour with Rev, and that was on a show called Rev Run Sunday Suppers, and we've made three seasons of that. And so Rev is not only um, a really talented fellow, but I'm I'm really proud and honored to call him a friend. Which is, I mean, how often does that happen? Um, well, with you, I guess a lot. You know, I I, I think with <laughs> us it happens more than not. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I. I really want my goal every time we make a television show with a celebrity is to our attempt is to we want to leave the celebrity in a better spot than they were before they started making a television show with that with us. Um, And I think that we go into it with the notion of what is the celebrity trying to achieve and how can we achieve that and still produce a successful television show so everybody wins? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that point of view for them, I mean, that's exactly what they want to hear, right? So, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's why you're saying it, but in terms of, you know, that team alignment, because I think celebrities also can be paranoid because, you know, people want things from them and or whatever it is, is to know that someone has their back and their best interests. That's a good recipe. I think that I think to a certain degree that's a bit of an anomaly. Oftentimes, people will tell a celebrity whatever they want to hear in an attempt to get into business with them. Uh, what we talk about at Good Clean Fun is our track record, and we've been doing this now for almost a decade. And there is we have yet to make a television show that doesn't leave our participants in a better spot than they were before it started. And that is something that I am exceedingly proud of. As you should be. That's incredible. I want to sort of continue on that path, but I have to go back to The Bachelor because we can't sure. not talk. Of course you knew. You knew I was going to go there. 
I so, mean, so how did that happen? Yeah, how did you? Okay. I mean, so I'm making a show. I, I had transitioned at MTV, and I had done a good enough job on other projects that I was offered my first show as an executive producer. Um, and that led to my second show as an executive producer. And I was starting on my third season of the show. It was a show called Becoming. And uh, I was repped at CAA. And I got a phone call from an agent there who said, I need you to sit down with one of my clients. His name is Mike Fleiss. And I said, who's Mike Fleiss? <laughs> and he said, did you see that show, Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire? And I said, I sure did. <clears throat> and he goes, it's the creator of that show. And I was like, okay, what's he up to? And he had just signed his deal at what is what is now known as Warner Horizon, but right. was then known as Telepictures. Right. Um, and he had, I think, just sold ABC on the idea of The Bachelor and had just sold the then WB, now CW, on a show called um, High School Reunion. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so I said, sure, I'd love to meet with Mike. I sat down with Mike, and Mike said, you know, I understand you know how to make really good TV. I'm really good at making TV, but I'm e even better at selling TV. Um, I'd like you to be my first hire, and will you come and will you make these shows with me? And I was like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 was, I, was, I, was, I was a pretty cocky uh, youngster, um, and... I had I had just produced my second show as an executive producer. I was doing right. really really well, and I was thinking to myself, "Right, it sounds like a gamble." It sounds like a gamble. Right. I, I like I'm 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 you want me to close my own production company, and you want me to go join your production company, and you want me to go make these shows that may or may not be any good. Right. And so Mike and I, I like to say we dated for you know a month or two, and then one morning over breakfast. Uh, Mike looked at me, and he and it was it was what he needed to say in order for me to take the job. And he looked at me, and he said, "Did you come to Hollywood to play in the big leagues, or did you come to Hollywood to play in the minor leagues? Because right now at MTV, you're playing in the minor leagues, and Ooh. I'm offering you a job in the big leagues." And that was all I needed to say. And that was him proposing, basically. That was basically his proposal. <laughs> um, and I went, and I was his first hire, and. Um, and there you go. And we were off to the races. And the very first show we did was The Bachelor. Um, the first season was with Alex Michelle, yeah, a I saw it. <laughs> Harvard undergrad and Stanford MBA. Um, and um, and the rest, you know. The, How many seasons did you do? Um, I think between The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, I think I did eight seasons, almost nine. I really did like eight and a half. So when you look at those years and you look at the first season and, you know, it's been a long time and I've seen a lot of them. But, you know, and then you go to your eighth, like what were the things that changed? What were the things you learned? Like what were what are sort of the biggest takeaways from that trajectory? Wow. Um, I think my biggest takeaway is Mike was always challenging us in ways that I always thought were impossible. Like some of his asks, I would just like, I'd, I'd sit there, I would be respectful, but inside I was rolling my eyes. Um, like get the helicopter to go over the date? No, or not more that like, kind of... like I want this to happen. Oh, right, right. Um, <laughs> Got it. And I'm just like, well, okay. <laughs> um, but then, you know, we would sit back and uh, we would, you know, Lisa Levinson, who was my fellow co-EP in those early years, we would sit down and we would say, okay, this is what Mike wants to happen. Where are we on this, this, and this? And how can we make this happen? It was, it was really Mike. Mike threw all the really right ingredients into the pot that mm -hmm. first season. Um, and, you know, if you look at kind of some of the people that went through Mike's shop, over the course of that time there, it's a who's who in reality television. You know, it, it is um, at one point, you know, uh, there were those at the company who referred to the people under contract as like murderers row going <laughs> back to like the, those great New York Yankees teams because there was so much talent there producing television. So who were some of those names? Those were, that was Lisa Levinson, that was Scott Jeffers, that was Sally Ann Salsano, that was Mike Nichols, that was Scott Einziger. 
um, just to name a few. Yeah. Like, like just uh, right there, like that's kind of staggering. And then like the subsequent talent that came in, like um, Sean Travis directed some stuff for us early on and he went on to be one of the really great minds behind the hills. You know, there is so much talent. Like that was really at the time – there was there was only a couple of places that were really kind of institutional alternative at that point in time. It was Langley making cops, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. and it was Buna Murray and all the things that they were making. And then there were starting to be sprinkles of things yeah. coming up, but there wasn't like that there weren't like powerhouses the way like now you can go, okay, there's the like, there's the Bachelor camp and the and Fleiss's <laughs> camp, there's Burnett's camp. Right. Um, there's all these camps right, now right. where, you know, there's the John DeMaul camp, you know, there's the this camp. There's all these places now where where r- r- talented people and alternative are sprouting from. But back then it, it wasn't that way. Right. Because there was one game in town, more or less. And did you know when you did that first season it would be a hit? Um, I did. Really? I, I genuinely did. Uh, I uh, before the first episode aired, I wrote Mike uh, a letter in which I made 10 predictions for the show. Um, and I put it in a sealed envelope, and I gave it to Mike before the first episode aired. And I said, when the season is over, let's open this, and let's see how I do. And? I got like seven of my 10 predictions came true. And what were a few? Do you remember? Um, we would be picked up before the season ended. That happened? Um, it happened. Uh, we... After the first episode, every episode would go up after that. I was off by an episode. Like, our first episode debuted. The second episode went down a little bit. But from that point on, we went up and up and up and up. Um, I think I said there, that we'd get a spinoff from it. Wow. Like, there was, I, I had a bunch of predictions. That's incredible. Um, because it was one of those things where I just, I knew it in my gut. I, I had been around that kind of TV a couple of times already. Yeah. And um, I knew what we were doing. And I and and I also, I think coming up through MTV and cable, what I realized more than anything now in hindsight, not so much in the moment, but now with hindsight being 2020, cable had been preparing the viewership for primetime reality, hmm. unbeknownst to primetime. Interesting. All of the people that primetime likes to talk to, that, you know, those young people with money, they had started to grow up now on reality TV. And so that first generation of reality TV viewers were suddenly now becoming parents. And those kids that had grown up watching the real world and cops and those types of shows now suddenly we're having children and or we're dating themselves. Right. And now all of a sudden there was this medium in primetime television that was giving them bigger, brighter, faster versions of what they had seen in cable. Very interesting. And I have to ask you about Unreal because, you know, it's just sort of the obvious question. Have, have you seen it? What do you think of it? Is it of any resemblance to reality? Um. You know, I, I've been asked this question a lot, obviously, yeah, over the last couple of years. Yep. Um, I have seen it. Um, you know, it's much the same as alternative reality television. It's produced for entertainment value. Right. Long and short of it. It's produced for entertainment value. Um, the notion that anybody would be withholding meds from <laughs> participants on a television show, I find reprehensible. And that would certainly not happen on one of my sets, and nor did it ever happen on a Bachelor set that I was on. But in terms of creating good drama for a scripted narrative, it provides awesome fodder for people to talk about. Is Um, there anything they get right that feels like, whoa, that's, you know, just even a small thing like the control room or? Yeah, the control (laughs) room-ish, you know. I I think it's ultimately they're making a television show, you know. the 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 co-creator of the show Sarah Shapiro she worked at the bachelor right she was like an associate producer you know she wasn't like this this wasn't someone who was running the show and i think that just like in any line of work i think depending on where you sit on the totem pole your view of the process is very very different and the higher you are on the totem pole the more truth there is to what is actually going on and i think that 
the lower you are on the totem pole, the less truth you see and the more you have to make up to fill in the blanks. Do you, what is your feeling about love? Like, as the seasons went on, I don't know if you've been asked this question. Like, did you become a super jaded producer and it wasn't even about the love story? Or did you still kind of hope that it would happen? Like, where did you fall in the sort of, you know, fairy tale romance of it all? I viewed every season as a fairy tale. You had to. It, or else it doesn't work. If if you aren't crafting a fairy tale romance, then it's then a the couple certainly isn't going to work. But more importantly, the whole notion of the show is not going to work. You guys did and do a and and I have to admit I haven't seen it the last few years. But the the one thing you know, as a producer, you'd think I'd be savvy enough to figure it out. But I swear to God, when it was down to the last two, I never knew who the guy was going to pick. It was so brilliant. The editing, the producing, I mean, nothing. I, I don't know that there's much like it out there in creating it and falling for it every time as well, a viewer. Yeah. I, you <laughs> it's know, brilliant. Um, but that's also part of what Mike's sometimes crazy requests are is, you know, <laughs> everybody is saying, it's going to be Susie. It's going to be Susie. It's going to be Susie. And Mike comes into the room and he goes, it's going to be Jane. <laughs> and you're like, okay, it's going to be Jane. And and you figure out a way to help make it Jane. And when it's going to be Susie, it's going to be Susie. Is that because The Bachelor genuinely is falling in love with Susie or just that's the way it's being produced? No, I think that at any time during the show, I think The Bachelor is probably in love with more woman, more than one woman, um, at least on all the seasons I did. That or in he, lust. Yes. Um, you know, the show is if, – if you want it to work as a social experiment, it's far – it, it, it is a much more successful experiment with a woman at the center of it than with a man at the center of it. Great point. I okay? totally agree. Um, the ladies go into it really wanting to find love. And I think the men do for the most part as well. But, but I think something occurs that is slightly different. And I think it's part of the way that men and women are different in terms of how they view love and how they view relationships. Um, 100%. With the men, they go on the show, and at first they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe all these women are into me. (laughs) Okay, It's amazing. It's amazing. It's incredible. (laughs) And then they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to pick between these phenomenal people. And men don't like to let women down no matter what. No matter what. Ultimately, he makes a choice, and then for about three months – they're really not going to see each other right. that much. Maybe on weekends. There could be a long weekend where they're off in seclusion here and there. But And they might make some phone calls to each other. But there isn't that you know face-to-face presence that is necessary for a relationship to work. And also what's fighting against that, re- that relationship is now you have the bachelor out in society. <laughs> right. Being hit on by every woman who he comes in contact with. You're right. And he's doing interviews and it's, oh, my God, you're so handsome. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And and all of a sudden they start to think, well, I only had 25 women to choose from on the television show. I'm now in America where there's over 100 million women. And suddenly they start to get illusions of grandeur. They start to think they're a little bit uh, more important than they actually are. And all of a sudden, the eye starts to wander, and it usually doesn't end well. So true. I never thought of that piece of it as being the reason why it always goes south. On the flip side, with the ladies, when the ladies make that choice in their mind where they want that guy to propose, okay, and that guy then gets down on a knee and proposes— She's in. Right. That's it. That's it. Yeah. She is committed. Yeah. <laughs> she wants that guy. By hell or hell, high water, they're going to make it work. Yeah. Nine times out of ten. Yeah. Slightly less than that, so but you know what I'm saying. Right, right, right. That's so interesting. Very. I, I mean, I could talk about The Bachelor forever. I want to make sure we get to Almost Famous. Barely Famous. You I, keep oh blowing God. it. Barely Famous. And I watch it, for God's sakes. Um it's so great. I, I described it. I, I taped the intro before. I described it as, as sort of a cross between um, Curb Your Enthusiasm and The Comeback, which I hope you've seen. Yeah. Um, just because of the sort of meta-ness of it sure. all. And I think now that maybe the joke's out or that people know what it is, you can have way more fun because you can just complete. It doesn't need to 
be we don't need to be guessing if it's sort of a little bit unscripted because we know it's totally scripted and therefore why not script it to be amazing yet they still feel so off the cuff and natural that it gives that kind of hybrid feel. Is well, that describing it correctly? I think that's spot on. Aaron and Sarah had a definitive vision when they created this show. Growing up here in Hollywood and um, particularly for them having so many different kind of facets of their ever-evolving family put their toe into the water of reality television. You know, like one of the early shows on Fox was a show called uh, – Princess of Malibu, oh, yeah. which was Brody Jenner yeah. and David Foster and his wife at the time um, and a young Spencer Pratt mm-hmm. was best friends with Brody Jenner. So they had seen how reality affected their family. They tangentially, uh, you know, are loosely related to not even they're not technically related, but by association, they're related to the Kardashians. Right. So they had seen that. And because of who they are and, and how they grew up in town, they had probably been asked half a dozen times to be on various versions of reality shows. And they had always said, we're never going to do a reality show. Yeah. Um, but what they wanted to do is they wanted to take the piss out of the genre. And, um, you know, their point of entry is fabulous. And they're really, really funny ladies. Yeah, the whole, and again, just talking to you for the last hour, I can kind of get in your head a little bit about your artistic vision. I mean, I love the tone and the sort of I Love Lucy graphics. I mean, it really feels throwbacky in that way. I don't know how to, retro? I don't know what, how to describe it, but it, it's, it fits perfectly. Well, one of the things I love about Curb Your Enthusiasm is their choice of music. And it feels very bass bassoony. Totally. And, you know, that really plays to Larry David's character and his curmudgeon-y nature. <laughs> and, I, and I liked it. And I was like, how do we kind of create that atmosphere musically, tonally with this show? And so, you know, we, we describe it as kind of like Hollywood Regency, where it's bright and sparkly. Totally. And, um, and again, we're using music in a non-traditional, in a traditional sitcom way, but in a non-traditional alternative. Like, you would probably never hear a lot of the cues on Barely Famous on a traditional reality show. Because it's just, it's the network could say, what is this music? Why are you using this music? Completely. It doesn't sound like every other reality show. Yeah. And I would say, well, that's the point. Right. Um, right. Uh, and, and I would also say, because it's not a reality show. Right. But that's what's so great about it as they go into VH1 for, quote unquote, VH1 for the meetings and we want to go on our trip and they get sent to like the Disney and it's just like the worst Universal trip Orlando. I'm oh, sorry, Universal Orlando. It's just hilarious. They are uber talented, really, really funny ladies and they elevate everything we do. Do you guys, did they ad-lib the scripts that you give them? Like how much of it is? Well, when, when you say scripts, we don't write a traditional so it's script. it's like Curb? It's much more in the vein of Curb. Okay, Where nice. uh, it's the story of the episode is laid out and kind of the uh, objective of all of the participants in every scene and what they're trying to accomplish is laid out. And there are some funny jokes in every scene. Right. But I'll argue that once we cut the show, I would say 80 percent of the funny in the show is ad-libbed in the moment either from Aaron or Sarah or people on set just th- like we'll do three four five six takes of something and as it's happening somebody will say that was really great but what if you said this or someone will say hey what if we try this so it's a very very collaborative environment in which we're making the show and you've had some amazing cameos I thought Chris Martin was hysterical and he's not Chris even an actor Martin that day on set First of all, I have to say, Chris Martin was the nicest human you can possibly imagine, first and foremost. But second of all, he was so into what he was doing, and we were so entertained where literally, I think we only did like four takes, but each of the takes was probably 20 minutes long because there was so much funny happening that like I couldn't yell cut because I was just like, it's too good. I don't know what I want to use. Like, let's just put it all on tape and we'll figure it out. He's got another career going on there. He was funny, really funny. He as he's equally 
funny as he is talented as a musician. It, it, he is really that good. Yeah. He's that he's good. He's got it all. He does. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really great show. And, and I'm curious in terms of, I know the first season ratings weren't great, but it was such a critical success. They gave you guys another season, which I'm so happy. Do you, How much of a third season will depend on whether you get huge ratings or is it just such a great signature for the channel that it's not going to matter that much? You'd have to ask VH1 that question. I will. Our, our, our ratings are up season two, which great. I'm excited to say. Amazing. Uh, but, you know, this is a fickle business. And, um, you know, we want to make the show for as long as VH1 will allow us to make the show. And you've got a show with Cindy Crawford coming up on Amazon. Uh, we're in the midst of trying to figure that out right now. It's called Endorsed. Um, and it's really, it's, uh, we're really excited about that, particularly since it's going to be on Amazon and, you know, the notion of this convergence of commerce and entertainment is something that I think is really unique and, um, we're excited to be, you know, kind of playing in that arena. And with, um, Stuart Copeland from the police on Travel Channel show? Island Fever with Stuart Copeland. Um, Stuart Copeland is, uh, first of all, it was one of those meetings that like, I was in Stuart Copeland's studio, uh, and I was just like, I'm surrounded by his police uh, Grammys oh and God. all this stuff, and I'm just thinking, to, and I'm talking to my like 17 year old self, right, totally. and I'm just like, like going, this man, is this is kind of cool. <laughs> yes. Um, and and what and what as I was starting to talk with Stuart, you know, here's a guy that has circumnavigated the globe half a dozen times as a major rock star. But when you're doing that, you're looking at it through the window of a tour bus or the window of an airplane. Yeah. And so this is an opportunity for Stuart to go back to all of those places that he was like, God, I wish we had another day in this town. Um, he's you now do. has an, an extra day in these towns. So we, it is. You're actually following him on a real tour. Well, it's not so much a real tour as we're going back to places Got that it. meant something that that we're going back to places that sparked his initial interest, but he didn't have enough time to go there. In the pilot episode, we went to Bali. Nice. Um, and he hadn't been there since the 80s when I think he was there for like a day or two and he happened to bump into John Belushi while he was there. And, you know, he he has this great story from there, but he didn't, he just scratched the surface. And so we go back and we were there for about a week and we do some really amazing things. Stuart gets up on a surfboard, he surfs the waves in Bali. Uh, he goes to some temples. There's this wonderful temple called Tirta Impul. I hope I pronounced that right. Impressive. Um, where uh, you go through a number of cleansing rituals. There's a natural spring there with all these, you know, for lack of a better term, faucets that don't have on and off switches. They just continually flow water. And wow. there's a purification ritual that the locals go through there. And Stuart goes through that with one of the locals. He eats some great food. He sees some great you know, crazy local Bali stuff. Sounds sounds amazing. Okay, so now we have to get to our Inside the Axer Studio questions. Oh, yes. Dun, dun, dun. They're very easy. Okay. Proudest accomplishment? Um, my family. Great. Now, proudest professional accomplishment? Um, but I like that answer. Uh, the fact that I started a production company and 10 years later we're still around. Hell yeah. Mazel. And do you have any regrets? No, because, because you know what? Uh, regrets means mean that you don't like where you are, and I really like where I am. That's a good answer. What's the craziest show you've ever pitched to a network? I pitched a show to Fleiss uh, when I was at Next. Because um, we were always kind of thinking of the craziest of the crazy shows. Don't forget when I was there, Mike made a show called The Will. Oh, I remember that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't make that one. Okay. Um, Noted. Uh, but uh, I I always love that scene in Tom Sawyer where Tom and Huck are up in the rafters of the church watching their own funeral and seeing what people are saying about them. Wait, did this show go into development of VH1? It might have, but like in in like in in like the early 2000s I said to Mike, "Let's yeah. do a show where we fake someone's death yeah. and they can watch everybody talk about them." I love By the way, I think about it. is it normal is it normal that I think about that all the time? Um, well, it's, you know, <laughs> or it, narcissistic. Mike looked at me, he goes, "That's even too crazy for me, Carbone." <laughs> I swear that VH1 <laughs> did with I want to say Joe Pesci was involved in it, but I heard a very similar show that was actually in development. Well, so, there you go. Good idea. So so what are your top three reality shows that you love to watch? 
It's eclectic. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'll start with The Bachelor, and it's not because I made it, but because um, when I first started working on it, my children were very, very young, and they were not watching the show. But as they have now gotten older and they're teenagers now, they have started to watch the show. And so it's now like when I left the show, I didn't watch the show for a period of time. You needed to just. You needed to decompress. Right. But then about three years ago, I started watching it again with my kids. And um, I'm kind of viewed as the bachelor whisperer in the house because <laughs> I'm, I'm the one who's like, Dad, what happens next? What happens next, Dad? <laughs> That's great. Um, and so I, I thoroughly enjoy watching that with my son <laughs> and my daughter. Um, and are you always right? Uh, I'm still, I still have a pretty good track <laughs> record. On. I still have a pretty good track Things record. Things haven't changed that much. They haven't changed that much. Um, I'm a big fan of a show called Gold Rush. I really think that's really, really done well. Great characters on that show. It's in the vein of Deadliest Catch, mm-hmm. but, it, but it feels somehow more accessible. You know, not everybody can go be a crab fisherman, right. but it kind of feels like when you watch that show that like you could do it. You could kind of go be a gold person <laughs> right. if you chose to. Right. Um, and I say that not knowing how hard that job is, right. but at least it, it kind of looks like you could, you know, if you could drive a forklift or a big yeah. truck, it sounds like you could, that's like half the battle. I don't know. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I, I like me a little Jeff Lewis, you know, oh, wait, it just started um, back. It just week. started back up again. And so there's been a long absence. And, and I think Jeff Lewis is just one of those undeniably great television characters. So wonderful. Um, you know, I, I watch a little Amer- American Ninja Warrior mm-hmm. with my son, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think there's something great about that, you know, the American spirit and competition and whatnot. Um, I, that's a probably a, that's a, good that's, mix. That's a good mix. That's great. Well, I've loved having you. I feel like I could talk to you for two more hours, but we've, we've just got to stop. Whatever you say. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. 